Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Welcome to Session 20, where we're taking a look at the end of the pre-exile historical books. Uh, we're talking about the end of 2 Kings and the end of 2 Chronicles, looking at the Babylonian exile. Also, I'd like to say a word of welcome to those of our extended family that are apparently listening to us from Kentucky, Ohio, the other places here in West Virginia, North and South Carolina, as well as Virginia. So thank you for supporting this ministry, and we pray that it is a blessing to you as we seek to know Christ and through His Word make Christ known. So before we get into tonight's study, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is indeed that we thank you and we praise your holy name for giving us the opportunity to come and to worship you in this way. Lord, we thank you for being a God who has chosen to grant us the privilege of your word. We ask that you might use it to grow us, to conform us to the image of your Son, so that we might learn well the lessons of the past in hopes of a bright future with you. So join with us now. Open our hearts to your word. May the Spirit that wrote these passages now open our understanding, open our minds to you, to your will, and to our place in your kingdom. In the most holy name of Christ we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Tonight we're going to be covering the last little bit again of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, but I'm also going to be talking to you a little bit about the difference between the kingdom books, which are 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and what many think of as a synopsis set of books called 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, the, the Jewish Old Testament, or rather the Jewish Bible, 1 and 2 Chronicles come at the very end because they think of it as a synopsis of everything that's come before, the same way that, that Deuteronomy functions as a synopsis of the entire Torah, the entire law and the teachings. Let's get into the history as we talk about the Babylonian exile and an epilogue to the kingdom of Judah. So when last we met, King Jehoiakim, the grandson of King Josiah, had been deposed out of the throne by Nebuchadnezzar II. He was suspected of treachery, which is ironic because he'd only had hold of the throne for three months. He was taken prisoner in chains to Babylon, and this is still roughly young in his life. So his uncle Zedekiah, one of the sons of Josiah, was actually renamed. He was given this name by Nebuchadnezzar, and he was installed as a vassal king over the people of Judah. Zedekiah's actual birth name was Matanyahu. It's the same word that gets translated into Greek as Matthias and translated into English or transliterated into English as Matthew, literally meaning the, a gift of God. He reigned, or at least he sat on the throne of Judah, I should say, between 597 and 586 B.C. He was 21 years old when he took the throne. While he was there, he was quick to form a military alliance with Pharaoh Hopra of Egypt. And when news of this traveled to Babylon, Egypt wanted to use the Levant area, the area of what we know today as Israel, as a buffer state between the growing power of Babylon and their own kingdom. Egypt, uh, up until the time of Rome, 
was a thorn in the side of the Babylonian Empire and later on the Persian Empire. They revolt against Nebuchadnezzar II. Egypt actually sends charioteers to defend Jerusalem and they are soundly defeated. This all happens while Jeremiah is in his ministry to the southern kingdom and he is downright denied as far as his influence is concerned in this last little phase of Judah's existence. So Nebuchadnezzar for the third time lays siege to Jerusalem and about this time he's had it with this problematic province as he sees it. So he is resolved to end the existence of Jerusalem. So they not only laid siege to the city, they destroyed it. They raised it to the ground. They took all of the best artisans, the best scholars, the priesthood, everyone that was of the upper middle classes and the, and the higher classes, the aristocracy. They put shackles through their noses or hooks through their jaws and they drug them to Babylon as a new working class. Zedekiah attempts to escape and he ends up taking refuge, him, his family, and a bunch of his court officials in a limestone quarry in what is today the Muslim quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. But he's discovered, he's found out, he's brought before Nebuchadnezzar, who first of all drags him before his captors. He puts to death Zedekiah's children before him, and then he puts out Zedekiah's eyes ensuring that the last thing that he would ever see on this world would be the death of his children. Anyway, this, pro this had been prophesied earlier by Jeremiah and Ezekiel both. Jerusalem is plundered and ultimately destroyed. The temple is scrapped. Building materials, the cedar beams, the iron pins that were holding it together, the silver, the gold, the temple furnishings, everything that they could lay their hands on, including some of the well-quarried stone, is removed from the temple, and the remainder of the building is utterly demolished. No stone left upon another as they are searching for anything of value. And it, as well, is carted off to Babylon. The rest of the city is put to fire. It is utterly destroyed. And the only people left are those that either they couldn't capture the poor, the marginalized, those that were worthless, and the gardeners, the farming classes, to tend the vineyards, to tend the olive groves, to, in other words, supply Babylon with food. I found this interesting while I was doing the research for today. This is a stone relief. It's a portrait of Nebuchadnezzar. The actual thing is about a 50 centimeter tall chiseled memorial to the king of Babylon called the Tower of Babel Steel. And the reason that it's interesting is because of what it depicts. Now you can hardly see it again up in the right-hand corner as you're looking at it. You can see Nebuchadnezzar himself and to his left, or rather to our left, you can see what looks like a bunch of stair steps climbing up. The rest of the stone monument is severely damaged. This tablet had remained part of a collection in Norway for a long time. From what I can understand, they're starting to understand its significance. Uh, it's the king, it's a, it's a monumental tower that was built under his reign, and the text actually reads as follows. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, am I. In order to complete El Temen Anki and Emin Anki, we have no idea, I have no idea if that's a correct pronunciation or not, I mobilized all countries everywhere. Each and every ruler who had been raised to prominence over all the people of the world. 
loved by Marduk, that's the god of, of his pantheon. Incidentally, I don't know if you know this or not, we'll cover this in the latter session. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, started his career, his influential career, as a priest, not as a royal official. From the upper sea to the lower sea, the distant nations, the teeming people of the world, kings of remote mountains and far-flung islands, the base I filled to make a high terrace. I built their structures with bitumen and baked bricks throughout. I completed it, raising its top to the heaven, making it gleam bright like the sun. There is a question as to why on earth Babylon would want to disperse the people of Judah. Because after you take out the royal family, after you take out the ruling class, wouldn't it be better to have the people there subject to you to tend their own farms, to raise their own crops, to feed you, and to be taxed by you as long as you held military sway over it? Basically the same thing that Rome would do later on. The answer is they had a super huge building project that they were constructing at the time. When the Jews in exile finally arrived in Babylon, they were put to work, especially the artisan class and the scholarly class, in building, or rather completing, a giant tower which sat in the middle of the city. Now, from what we can understand, for generations there had been a half-completed structure in Babylon, and it was only during the Neo-Babylonian period, this period, when Nebuchadnezzar came to power, that he decided that it would finally be completed. It was a structure that had stood since even their antiquity. So something that a, a large, giant, towered ziggurat had been in the city for generation upon generation upon generation, half completed with piles of rubble, piles of quarried building materials scattered around it, never having been finished. And Nebuchadnezzar decided to pull all of the resources of his new empire, every person that he could as worker, and even the material from those foreign lands, including the structures from the temple in Jerusalem, to complete it. It's mild speculation, but what structure do you know of in Babylon that they'd started to complete as a high tower that hadn't been completed? Isn't that interesting? What's really neat, I think, of course you know that, because we've talked about it beforehand, Babylon right now is a UNESCO World Heritage Site where they're doing massive amounts of archaeological digs and reconstructions. Chances are good when they find the skeleton of this thing, they will also be able to find some pieces of Solomon's temple within its walls, having been gutted from Jerusalem and dragged here as spoils of war to complete a new Tower of Babel. Just something that I thought was interesting to pique your curiosity. Anyway, when Jerusalem finally fell and it was put to the fire, when the, tr the temple, the palace, the whole thing was destroyed. The remnant of the capital was moved about 30 miles north to the city of Mizpah along the Israeli-Judean border, or the old border of the two kingdoms. So that's where the books of the kings conclude. I'll mention this. King Jehoiakim, the one that had been taken captive to Babylon as a young man, he is eventually freed and given a place at the king's table. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. It's as though the chronicler of 2 Kings wants you to understand that even though Zedekiah was dead, the line of David continues. 
to give the people in that time, the people of Judah, hope that a messianic figure would finally emerge and he would be from David's line just as God had promised. Now, I want you to bear this in mind. The prophet Jeremiah had actually pronounced a blood curse on his descendants that they would never inherit. So if that's the case, how in the world can Jesus be the Messiah? We'll talk about that once we get to the Gospels. Here's two hints. There's a reason why there's a different genealogy in the book of Matthew than there is in the book of Luke. Also, the loophole that God uses to allow Jesus to inherit the throne of David is found in Torah. It's an almost obscure little loophole in the inheritance laws. And I'll give that to you to work out, to puzzle out, but we'll talk about that more when we get to the book of Matthew. So anyway, the books of the Chronicles, just to tell you a little bit about how they differ from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. The Chronicles, uh, the, the actual title in Hebrew is Divri Haimim, which more or less translates into the events of the days. And that comes from 1 Chronicles 27-24. It was originally written down as one compiled book, but when the Septuagint was written, because of the, uh, the size of the scrolls they were using at the time when it was converted to Greek, it had to be divided between two scrolls. That's how we end up, instead of the Chronicles, we end up with first and second. The authorship of these books, or rather the research that was done to compile these books, is attributed to Ezra. And its date for completion is usually given somewhere between uh, 450 and 400 BC. This is relevant to us because that means that while a lot of the information being compiled for 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings happened almost concurrently with the events as they were taking place, this is written upon the return of the people of Judah into their native land. It's again the last book in the Tanakh, or the Hebrew Bible. It is the history of the people of Israel in brief. But that doesn't mean it's an exact copy of 1 Kings, 2 Kings. It centers on prophetic reflection, not merely fact. It is Ezra, or it is the compiler, whoever it happens to be, not just telling you about the events, but looking back on the events through a spiritual lens. He was actually, whoever it was, was actually doing a devotional service by writing these down so that the people who were returning back would remember who they were and who they were before God. So it is not just about history, it is about reflection and devotion. And it actually covers a lot of the time period from the time of Adam in the genealogies at the very beginning of these books to the decree of Cyrus the Great which allowed Judah to return home. The events of 1 Chronicles takes place roughly at the same time of 2 Samuel. The book of 2 Chronicles takes place roughly about the time of 1 and 2 Kings. It actually ends with an incomplete sentence. Let those who are blessed by God go up, dot, dot, dot. The chronicler is actually reciting the decree of, of Cyrus the Great as kind of a kickoff point to say, you, this is the part of history you, you don't know. This is where we start our story. And in fact, the, the decree of Cyrus the Great is listed verbatim for you in the book of Ezra. The purpose that the Chronicles were written, it is also 
suggested comes from the book of Ezra. And we'll read it together, Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. This is what the, this is what Ezra was going through as he returned home, as he starts to see the people of Israel. These are God's people. And this is what he's experiencing at that time. The people of Israel, even the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding people whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. In other words, he's not talking about race. He's talking about devotion to other gods. He's talking about the synchronism that we read about in the books of the Kings. He's talking about the people of Israel intermarrying with people who haven't converted. As Paul would later say, don't be unequally yoked. It has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It has everything to do with where their hearts stand before God. Even uh, Rahab, even Ruth were both not from the people of Israel, yet they were welcomed in after they converted. Ruth stopped being a Moabitess. For instance, the day that she went to Naomi and said, your people will be my people, your God shall be my God. But in this case, Ezra is pointing out the fact that even the Levites, the priests, the descendants of Aaron are welcoming into their homes and their families people who believe in a pantheon of gods, people who believe in Moloch, the one that demands child sacrifices through fire. It's not just that they're marrying foreign people, it's that they're accepting the religion along with it. The very thing that Moses said, don't do, because they will be a snare to you. Going on, indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and the officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. Translation, the people of God do not know who they are or what their God requires of them. And when I heard this report, I tore my tunic and my robe. I pulled out some of the hair from my head, from my beard, and I sat down devastated. So as the historians or as the traditional historians claim, we believe that Ezra at least started the project, or rather headed this giant research project to dig back into the annals of the kings, to dig back into the, the books that are now lost to us, like the, the, the annals of, of Ido the seer uh, and other texts that uh, other court records that we unfortunately no longer have access to to compile together these two books. So whatever you do, do not skip them. A lot of people, when they do the reading of the Bible of the year, what we've committed to do, they, they get to the Chronicles and they're like, oh, I have already covered all this stuff back in Kings. No, you haven't. There's a lot that is alike, but there are more than a few differences too. The purpose of writing, as we read over, is number one, it serves as a prequel to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Incidentally, that's another book that was ripped apart during the time of the Septuagint. Ezra and Nehemiah are not two separate books. They're in fact one united book that has become separated thanks to the Septuagint writing process. It is meant to educate the returning Babylonian exiles on their own heritage, on their own uh, religion, and trying to learn well the unfaithfulness of the past, learn about it, so that you can prevent it in the future. All of these are historical based on Judah's point of view, the, the point of view of those that were loyal both to God and to the kings of the Davidic line. 
It provides a background for what the writer was assuming would be the coming of the Messiah. It offers a tremendous glimpse of the virtues of repentance, renewal, and revival. Because remember, a king after David's likeness is not necessarily a good king from the world's perspective. David himself was not necessarily a good person. He had plenty of failures. But the one thing that he got right, and, and, for, and Chronicles actually makes a point of this with the, um, the census that David had called. Chronicles says that it called through the influence of Satan. A historical book of the Bible actually names out the accusing angel and points him to David. So in some cases, the Chronicles are an apologist for David, but it doesn't necessarily whitewash him either. And again, understanding the covenant of God, the central reason that this book was put together was to prevent the people of God going so into degradation that God diasporas them again, which unfortunately was done. The outline of the two books goes as follows. First Chronicles, the first nine chapters, is a genealogy that highlights, it goes from Adam all the way through to the day of the writing of First Chronicles, and it includes uh, the genealogies of the kings and the priests primarily. This includes property records, because remember, in ancient Israel, you did not own land. The land owned you. God was the ultimate owner of the land. He parceled the land to you. Every se- excuse me, at the end of every year of Jubilee, if you'd leased out your land, you couldn't sell it by law. If you had leased it, it had to automatically snap back to its original owners. You didn't own the land of Israel. The Israel owned you, and God owned it all. The career of David is the big point of First Chronicles. It, again, it leaves out most of David's negatives because he was forgiven of them. It adds David's temple preparations, the amount of work that he did. This is not covered in the books of Samuel. David did a whole lot of preparation, including the outline, the pattern, the, uh, the architecture, if you will, of the temple before Solomon touched it. And it also prevent, uh, presents David in his role through the Davidic covenant as a forerunner of Christ. The next section has to do with the kings in Jerusalem. It begins with the career of Solomon. This opens up 2 Kings. So the two featured kings in both books, there's a giant chunk of 1 Kings that deals solely with King David. 2 Kings deals a great... Uh, deal with, with Solomon, at least the first nine chapters. It includes all of his historical expositions. One of the things that you need to know about the way that this book is written, again, it's not just history. It's also sermon commentary. It's almost like the, the author is using the historical background as his text for preaching to you. So again, it's not just about historical fact. It does include some of that well-researched, documented fact, but it's more about the spiritual devotional commentary than it is about the facts. That's why it's required reading if you really want to get anything from the Old Testament and how the Old Testament points to Christ. After we finish with Solomon uh, from chapters 10 through 36, it focuses on the roll call of the kings of Judah. It does mention a bunch of the kings of Israel, but only as they relate to the kings of Judah. 
Lastly, unfortunately, chapter 36, the last part of it, includes the exile and the eventual restoration of the people of Judah in an epilogue as to the judgment of God over it. The differences I want you to consider as you're reading these books. Number one, over 57% of the facts mentioned in the Chronicles are different, are new material than found in, in, in the books of the Kings in the books of Samuel. So over half of the Chronicles is brand new stuff. Not to mention that on average, every king that's listed has an additional eight verses about their reign. So it's not just a repeat. It's a broad overview from a spiritual perspective, from the perspective of God, if you will. Let's talk about the genealogies for just a second. Remember, the people of Israel are coming back into a land to possess the land and to inherit the land. Part of the reason that it was written is domestic, so that they would inherit their roles. Who was the first son and had the allotment of the first son's share? Who was in the priestly line? Who was in the kingly line, the line from which Messiah would come? So it establishes the social status of the people coming back into the land, but there is also a legal and political end of things. Again, where, what tribe do you come from? Where is your parcel land allotment? Where are your inheritance claims? Which section, from all the way back from Joshua, which section are you now supposed to go and to tend to? Because remember, in Israel, you are not an owner of the land. You are its custodian, its caretaker. And of course, there is the religious reason. Who is truly supposed to be a priest in Israel? Only the children of Aaron. Who does the Messiah come from? Only the line of David from the tribe of Judah. So that's why the genealogy is important. But if in your course of reading through it, you wanted to skip it, I can't say that I blame you very much. But there is a reason why it's there. That's what I want you to understand. The next part talks about the career of King David. And it emphasizes David's reorganization of Israel from being a confederation of tribes to one unified federation state. What do I mean by that? In Saul's day, when the army came together to defend Israel from the palace, uh, the, the people of Philistia, when they came together to, to defeat the Moabites, they would be from all the different tribes. They would wear all the different tribal colors. They would have all the different tribal patterns. It would almost be as though in different weapons, nothing was standardized. So it would almost be like the people who are soldiers from Kentucky having Kentucky-only equipment, Kentucky-only uniforms, Kentucky-only rank and file, Kentucky-only officers. People from West Virginia would have their own uniforms, their own equipment their own rank and file, and the two wouldn't mesh until the king came around. It was more of a firm league of friendship, to quote Richard Henry Lee, than it was a united nation. David changed that, and the chronicler makes a point of that. You, don't, you go from being 12 frustrating tribes to one country, one nation. So he reorganized that. He actually reorganizes the priesthood, too, into 24 choruses. Jerusalem gets established as not only the political but the religious center of the kingdom. The Ark of the Covenant is brought in. The temple preparation is made. The tabernacle has its headquarters there during the last little bit of its ministry. Again, there's the unauthorized census and David's punishment for conducting that census in chapter 21 and his preparation of the priesthood for their role in the coming temple to be built by his son Solomon. 
Solomon takes place, as you would expect, at the beginning part of 2 Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9. Of course, we have his request for wisdom and the account of, of his prayer to God and God in a dream asking him of all the things that I could offer you, what do you want? Because I have promised to honor my servant David through you. And he asks for wisdom. And because he asked for that above all things, a discerning heart under God, he is pleased and he grants him all the things that he could have asked for and didn't. Wealth, a long life, the defeat of his enemies, and so forth. There is the dedication of the temple in chapter 6 and 7, the national summary of the career of Israel. I encourage you to read that. Chapter 7, not just the good part. When you get here, you're tempted to drift straight to Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and so forth. Read all of it. Because God goes into detail as to what is going to happen to Israel and the chronicler is emphasizing why you need to read this book to ensure it doesn't happen again. So effectively, God's words are a national summary from a prophetic point of view in, in 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 22. Solomon's influence, a, a summary of his influence internationally, as well as the incident with the Queen of Sheba, is in chapter 8. His overall summary, his death and the civil war that split the kingdom, is in chapter 9. Now, the rest of it, again, is the roll call of the kings of Judah, but I want you to pay particular attention to these kings of note. Take a look at the kings that are after David's likeness. Kings like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Josiah, Uzziah. Manasseh I have left in there with the asterisk because he was a horrible king. He, in fact, is listed as the reason Jerusalem will fall. But in Second Chronicles 33, we read that while he was in chains in Babylon, he does one thing that proves that he's a child of David. He repents, and he is forgiven. There is, of course, the last two, the great last two kings in David's likeness, Kings Hezekiah and King Josiah. This is how the chronicler concludes the history of Judah from his perspective. This is his epilogue, if you will. All the leaders of the priests and the people multiplied their unfaithful deeds, imitating the detestable practices of the nations, and they defiled the Lord's temple that he had consecrated in Jerusalem. But the Lord, if it's capitalized like that, that means that the, the chronicler is trying to write the unpronounceable name of God that we normally read as Yahweh. But Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hands of his messengers, sending them time and time again, in other words, the prophets. For he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. Again, this is laid straight on the influence and the legacy left by Manasseh before he had repented. Verse 17, so he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, in other words, Babylon, who killed their fit young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on the young men or the young women, elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon, all the articles of the temple, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple. So it wasn't just the treasury. It wasn't just the artifacts. 
it was the, the building components of the temple itself that were they're harvested, basically, were cannibalized from the temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. Then the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall, burned all of its palaces, and destroyed its valuable articles. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon. They became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom, uh, the capture of Babylon, the city, by Cyrus the Great. And again, we'll get to that in the latter session. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. Mark this in your notes, because this was not covered in the kings. This is something that the chronicler picks up on regarding the covenant of God, all the way back from the Torah, that the people of God through Judah and through Israel had resisted. The land finally, in other words, enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. In fact, this is the reason why it was pegged at 70 years. So the epilogue basically covers this. The context of the judgment against the king Zedekiah and his court, his officials, in fact, his kingdom, if you will. One, he himself had a hard heart and encouraged hard-heartedness against the God of Israel. Unfaithfulness, we hear, multiplied. The temple prior to the Babylonian exile, the temple was already defiled. The warnings against the people of God from the prophets were outright rejected, including Jeremiah himself. The faithful, including the prophets, were persecuted. The Sabbath of the land was not observed until the exile, and it enjoyed a full 70 years of it. Again, the sabbatical year is part of the covenant of Moses. It is one of the ways in which both they, they exercise their devotion to God, they exercise their faith in God's providence, and they exercise care for the land. In today's time, this is why we have crop rotation. You let a certain parcel of land go fallow. But there's, there are ceremonial reasons too. And references to what happens during the sabbatical year happen all the way through Scripture. There's even coverage of it in Jeremiah chapter 34. All debts are forgiven. The land, again, is agriculturally allowed to remain fallow. Slaves are provisioned and freed. Poor were provisioned by what grew naturally. If you were a poor person living in Israel, during the sabbatical year, whatever was growing wild in the fields, because there's still going to be some stray seed around somewhere, the grape arbors are still going to produce, you had the, the, the owner of the field, or the, yeah, I guess that's the only way you can think of it, the owner of the field couldn't touch it by law. But the traveler and the poor could help themselves to whatever was growing. Deuteronomy had to be read to the people every Sabbath year, publicly, so that the people would be instructed in the law and the requirements of their God. And the people themselves would be provisioned through a previous year's abundance. As long as you maintain the Sabbath year, as long as you maintain your end of the covenant, God will provide more than enough in produce to get you through the sabbatical year and the preceding year of Jubilee when it happened. The same way that he gave you extra manna before the Sabbath, God would give you enough to last through the sabbatical year if you only maintain your faithfulness. So by abusing the covenant, what we're basically saying is that during a time of 70 Sabbaths, they had not observed the covenant. 
So what this shows is there is a disregard for the true owner of the land of Israel. There was a disregard for the care of the land of Israel. There was a disregard for the care of the poor, the afflicted, the marginalized, because that's what this was designed to help. There was a disregard for the uniqueness of Israel because they were doing what every other kingdom around them was doing. They had no regard for themselves the same way that they wanted a king before God's timing, like the other nations. They had a disregard for the providence of God because effectively they didn't, but from their own fear, from their own doubt, they didn't believe that God was who He said He was and would do what He said He was going to do. So they kept on harvesting until the land was unable to produce in many cases. That's the reason why they suffered famine. In America we did that once and it called it the Dust Bowl. They had a disregard ultimately for the teaching of the law as we heard the proclaiming of the book of the law and a denial of the prophetic image of the Messiah. The same sin that ended the life of Moses. So how long did this disregard for the covenant happen? Well, if you calculate the Sabbaths together, again, a Sabbath year happens once every seven years. There were 70 missing Sabbaths. So 70 times 7 gives you 490. If you factor in the year of Jubilee, the years of Jubilee, which stand alone, that's once every 50 years, There's nine years of Jubilee there, so effectively they were outside of their covenantal arrangement with the true owner of the land for 499 years. That's what the chronicler is telling the people who are reading it. And unless you know your Bible, you won't get this. What are the practical lessons that we can get through the historical books for today? This is something that uh, one or two of you have been asking me for. And a lot of this comes from my end of this discussion into your small group discussion questions that I give you uh, at the end of these services. One of the uh, practical lessons that we can gather, I believe, is choose for yourselves godly leaders, both in secular terms, political terms, and in religious terms. Now, what is a godly leader? Here are some things that I believe characterize a godly leader. Number one, they live in devotion and subjugation to God. They understand, even though they're in a position of leadership, that they have a leader that they're responsible to. Instead of leading by power and by personal influence, they lead by example and they lead by instruction. This is how Jesus himself led, as a servant leader. You call me master, and rightly so, but he is he he himself said that he does all that God that the Father commands him to do and does nothing aside from that. Even Jesus looked up to someone. They are empowered so that they cannot hoard power to themselves, but they can empower others. Watch out for anybody that doesn't try to empower, to grow, to strengthen those under their care. They seek cooperative relationships, not dictatorial relationships. They see others as divine image bearers, not as job titles, not as job descriptions, not as cogs in a machine, not as numbers. But everyone they recognize as a person of eternal significance and divine worth. Uh, One of the things that I will brag about uh, from another denomination, the Trappist monks in Gethsemane in Kentucky, One of their ministries is that they have an open door to all guests that would care to come. 
they can stay there for free as long as they make reservations. And they see this as their ministry because they see they're serving Christ in others. Whoever comes to their door for hospitality, they are serving the same way that they would serve Christ if He came. Just as Paul warns us, uh, teaches us that I covered in the last sermon here this past Sunday, in everything you do in word or deed, do it as unto the Lord. See others as, as, as divine image bearers. And this for you is instructions. Vote the way you believe. Do not tow a party line. Do not tow an ideology. Do not go for someone who is uh, a popularity contest waiting to happen. Vote the way you believe. Something else that I think is a very prominent lesson that we can glean from these historical books. Choose to finish well. Most of the kings we covered don't. A lot of them start out showing great promise and then falter and never recover because they don't repent. Again, that's what these books define as a good leader, someone who repents. The second they recognize a mistake, the second they feel the conviction, they go in their hands and face before God and they repent. Choose to finish well. Increase learning and devotion throughout the whole course of your life. You never stop being a disciple in Christ. Every moment that you have that you can be learning about Him, every second that you have that you can spend putting what you learn into service, practicing your faith, do it. Learn and stand firmly on biblical ethics. Don't give way to temptation, in other words. Always live out what you believe. Be both obedient to and dependent on God. Do not think that you're doing anything for yourself. Do not think that any of your possessions are your own. Do not believe that you yourself have enough strength, have enough patience, have enough wisdom, have enough wealth, because on your own you don't. All of that comes from only one source, the ultimate owner of this planet and us. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The ultimate owner of all that is, is God. Confess sin and repent regularly, including the ones you forgot about. That's how we maintain our end of the divine relationship. And pray first. All too often we think of prayer as an absolute last resort when it should be our first resort. A lot of the kings that we've studied about, they made the mistake of doing something first and praying about it later. In our own lives, it should be the other way around. And make sure, above all, that God is exclusive as Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your soul, with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your might, with everything that you are. God is primary. Avoid the trap of pride in times of success. This is another snare that we find a lot in these kings. The second they get successful, they get the big head, they think that they're responsible for everything that's a blessing to them. How do you avoid that? Give Thanks. If something good happens to you, recognize who gave that. Recognize that all blessings are not your doing, but God's. Practice the presence of God often, especially when you pray. Act as though God is always watching you. Act like God is always listening to you. Think in your minds, control your thoughts as though God is listening to you, because guess what? He is. Practice the presence of God and learn especially practical for all of these books that we've just covered. Learn from the examples of others. 
including the bad. Listen for God's will. How do you do that? This, I, I keep getting this question. How do I know what God's will is? First thing, read the Bible. Because if anything contains the will of God, the expectations of God, the nature of God, it's the Bible. You are blessed among all the generations that have ever come about by one, having a complete Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and two, being able to have it in an affordable way that you can read it and understand it. That's not always been the case in our history. It's very brand new as a concept. Look for the Spirit's influence too. And the key difference I asked you to think about between believers then and believers now is that we're the first generation to have both the complete Word of God in canon and the Holy Spirit of God's influence. Respect when God answers no. God does not not answer prayer. A lot of times God answers either in my own timing or no. And we need to respect when He does. Not in our timing, but His. Not in my will, but thine. Respect when God answers no. And you should add this to the rest of that sentence. Respect when God says, not now, but later. Prophetic insight focuses on the now. What do I mean by that? I shouldn't even have to tell you this, but there is a whole lot of people that think that prophecy has to do with future casting. The airways are loaded with people who are claiming the prophetic insight to the point that they're either forecasting the future, claiming they got a divine revelation from God, claiming they heard from God, claiming that God spoke to them, claiming that God showed them something. Listen, the majority of prophetic insight has to do not with the future, but right now. When the prophets, even the prophets that we're getting ready to study later down the road, even the prophets in those days, the future casting wasn't the focus of their message. The future casting was the, the way that they identified that God's fingerprints were on the message. It was the validation of the message, not the content of the message. Most prophetic insight happens in foretelling the Word of God, not forecasting the future. Dismiss any misused prophetic authority. If somebody claims that office, either foretelling or foretelling, if someone says, thus saith the Lord, and they're doing it for personal or political gain, or they're doing it to misdirect from the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will never deviate from the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will never say anything that is counterintuitive to what is in God's Word. It all flows in harmony together. If there is someone that tries to misdirect you from a spiritual truth, or if somebody tries to take that influence upon themselves and they give a future cast and it's inaccurate, that person is not of God, plain and simple. And if they claim that, if it doesn't happen, if they try to misdirect you, in the Old Testament, there was only one course of action for that person. Now, while I'm not encouraging you to pick up rocks at somebody and you know, kill them dead for it, you get one strike and you're out. If someone misuses that authority in any of those ways, they're done. Something else, and this is very relevant for today. God does not tolerate synchronism. Now, what do I mean by that? If you'll remember, synchronism is trying to worship God and worship other things at the same time. Again, the, the Canaanites and even the Israelites of the northern kingdom came to believe that God was 
a god in a pantheon among other gods. They tried to worship Yahweh, in other words, as a god alongside Moloch, alongside the Baals, alongside Asherah. God is not the first among others. He is the first of one. And there's a lot of people there. There there are seminary professors that try to say this, that the idea of an exclusive God came about later. That's news to Moses. Because even so far early as the book of Deuteronomy, there is no other God. God is the Lord of the heavenly host, but he's the only one who actually fits the definition of God. Angels are not gods. Anyway, those are a few references there if you need to quote somebody, if you have a false teacher that comes up and says something along those lines, that uh, the idea of the God of Israel being the only God is new. Very much not the case. God will not share his preeminence, either personally or in a church or in society. There are many that say that we do not have the right to impose our beliefs upon others as Christians. To them I say, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Those are the foundational orders of God, literally to all who believe. The foundation of the Christian religion is evangelism. The promotion of God's word to others because they are a potential son or daughter of the Most High God. They are a potential inheritor, prince or prince of the universe. It is our job to rescue them from the judgment that will come and to help them see their father loves them and is willing to rescue them from the judgment that he himself does not want to impose saved by the blood of Christ. For it is the will of the Father that none should perish, but that what? All should come to repentance through Christ Jesus. God is not tolerant in any way of the worship of others or devotion to anyone or anything else. In other words, there are idols right now. They're not necessarily stone statues of things we call God. It can be anything that we choose to devote ourselves to that we place above God. So how do we define evil? This is the last thing that I'll go over with you really quickly. Evil, quite frankly, is anything that disrupts the divine relationship between the believer and God. Anything that disrupts the divine relationship. One of the symptoms that we've read about in the books of the Kings, the Chronicles, and Samuel is the devaluing of the divine image, either in God or in Christ or in those created in it. How many of you know practitioners of the Muslim religion that make fun of Muhammad or that draw caricatures of him or that even tolerate it when other people do? How many people who are Christians do you know that make fun of Christ, that caricature him, that misuse his name? If there's any evidence that we have something that others don't, it's that we're in constant attack, including from our own. The symptom of evil, quite frankly, the devaluing of the divine image, including those who are created in it. Now, what do I mean by that? We live in a society right now where there are entire classes of people, entire populations that are considered to be exterminatable because their existence is inconvenient. Let me say that again. We live right now in a society where an entire caste of innocents is considered expendable, that their life is considered optional because they are inconvenient. 
Anytime a society chooses to disregard the image of God, it lives up to the definition of evil. It is a symptom that it is in their grasp. Power and money do corrupt, but they are, again, symptoms of a much greater thing, spiritual warfare. How do you get rid of that temptation? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Money, you can see the same thing too. The Bible, the actual translation is, is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Pride is actually the root of evil. But still, greed corrupts. What's the antidote to it then? Simple. Humble thyself before the Lord thy God. Understand that He is the ultimate owner and authority of everything. Choose God. Humble yourself before the Lord your God and He will lift you up. It's the promise of the Bible. Idolatry still very much exists. And again, that's anything that we put before God. It doesn't have to be images. It can be our work life. It can be our bank account. It can be our families. How ironic it is that some of us put such an emphasis on something that's a one element in our life that we divorce our spiritual lives from it. Church becomes optional. The church family becomes optional. Sports takes the place of raising kids in church. Wednesday nights can no longer be an option for many churches because the kids are in 16 kinds of soccer. Misspent priorities, that's an idol. When you sacrifice something to something else that is intended for God, you commit idolatry. And again, pride, self-worship is the foundational sin because we take God off the throne of our hearts and put ourselves in its place. Humility before God prevents this kind of corruption. Humble thyself. Sin, anything that is outside of God's divine will, sin strains the relationship with God. Mark this down. Make sure that you understand these last three concepts at least. Sin, by definition, strains a relationship with God if you're a believer. I didn't write this down because I'm talking to believers mostly. If you're an unbeliever, sin separates you from God. How many sins does it take to commit before you're separated from God eternally? One. Any sin, any stain, no matter what in our conception is great or small, any sin. Because it's not the, the action of sin that condemns you. It's the nature of sin that condemns you. The action is just an outward sign of an inward flaw. Repentance, if you're a believer, repairs the divine relationship. In obedience both in what we do and how we devote ourselves to God, strengthens the divine relationship. Let me say that again in brief. If you're a believer, sin strains a relationship with God. Repentance in harmony with grace repairs the divine relationship. And obedience and devotion strengthen it. That concludes our look at the pre-Babylonian historical books. The next section of your Bible that we'll cover later on will be the wisdom literature of the Bible, what uh, some of your Bibles actually call the books of poetry, the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. So because we've gone through the bulk of our discussion stuff from the previous sessions, I will spare you discussion questions for this time. The only thing I ask Go back during the, to the, to the practical session that we've talked about, the practical section. Look for anything that is new to you, anything that could be confusing or uncertain. 
make note of it and talk about those. Bring up anything that perhaps you didn't think about. Bring up of things that you thought more of. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this time that you've given us. We thank you for the majesty and glory of your word, as well as its wisdom. We ask that you would allow it to impart within us a desire, a hunger, and a thirst after your righteousness, and a desire to see that your kingdom grow so that more souls may be rescued from your judgment and might come to know you in grace and in love before it is everlastingly too late. So send us forth with this purpose. Help us to grow your kingdom here and help us to be tools in your hands that will lead to the salvation of others. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.